I'm thrilled this afternoon to be joined by Kelly Goff, who is a contributor to the Daily Beast, to the Hollywood Reporter, and a member of the On Strike Writers Guild of America. We'll talk a little bit more about this over the course of the afternoon, but basically Kelly can write anything about anything from abortion politics to donation politics to superheroes to uh, Sex in the City, uh, a tremendously talented person. But um, she wrote a perfect essay, a perfect column, I think, for the Daily Beast. Uh, Kelly, I've said that if I was teaching a course on politics, I would build it around your essay because it has so much of the basic ingredients of what it takes to understand at a complex level what goes on in American politics, why things are the way they are with some with some important elements and of life lessons. And I, and I just want to read the beginning of the column to you. Um, it begins by saying a few years ago, I had just begun my TV writing career when I was warned by friends in the industry not to publish a column critical of the fact that Democrats like Hillary Clinton had for years accepted donations from Harvey Weinstein and others like him. I did it anyway. And when I read it, I laughed out loud. And I just wondered talking to you, what is it about you that triggers that sense of defiance? That when someone tells you not to do something, it's a guarantee that you're going to do it. Where does that come from? I just never, I just never learned my lesson. I think some people would say after reading this column, I just never learn. Um, and I want to apologize off the out of off the outset because I think there's a little bit of a Wi-Fi issue on my end. So I'm gonna. I hope your listeners and viewers can hear me, Steve. Um, but what I, I, you know, I think part of it is my upbringing. Um, you know, there's so much talk about privilege and coastal elites versus flyover country. I am very proudly flyover country. Uh, my father for much of their lives. And, uh, and now here I am getting to have a career where I sit in air conditioning, working on a laptop and now get to talk to you. And so I think there is something about growing up in a system um, in a family that really is the epitome of the American dream, right? That my family could start where they did and, and I get to end up here. Um, but there's a, a sense when you grow up around people like my grandmother, who was brilliant, passed away at 100 last year and never really got the opportunity to, to use her brilliance, where I think you grow up believing that you can't always play by the rules because the rules weren't really written with everyone in mind. And so because of that, I tend to always question the rules and the people who make them, Steve. And I think that's basically what this column is. Did she talk about what life was growing up in Texas? She was born 100 years ago in the 1920s. Most people don't understand or really appreciate this, but most of the Confederate memorials that there's a debate over in the country were built in the 1920s and they were they were built in a moment of cultural backlash after the mm -hmm. end of world war one at a moment of black progress 
uh, at a moment commensurate with Black progress culturally, the Harlem Renaissance. And so this backlash, all of these Confederate statues are going up, right, going up, right, uh, contemporaneous to your to your grandmother's childhood, coming down uh, in your adulthood towards the towards the end of her life. None of them built really as memorials to the fallen on either side of the Civil War, but really a political statement a couple of generations later to remind Black Americans about their about their place. What did she instill in you? from that time, from that place that's formative to how you see the world? Well, she was born a year after women got the right to vote, which still boggles my mind. Yeah. And so she was born a, a year and a half later. And, um, you know, and what you said is really important and profound um, because what you just said actually plays a big role in why I work in this business um, meaning as a screenwriter, because Birth of a Nation, the horrifically racist film uh, that D.W. Griffith released, was a phenomenon and was credited with single-handedly increasing the presence and the membership of the Ku Klux Klan nationally. It's considered one of the most successful films in history in terms of cultural and political zeitgeist, because that film and its depiction, its horrific depiction, of you know the every negative stereotype you can think of in terms of blackness and particularly black men and and you know the fear of the the dangers that they um were supposed to pretend uh, towards white women it led to a massive uh, increase in membership of the Ku Klux Klan and so when i was in college steve i actually did um my final thesis presentation was on the political role of theater and film with an emphasis on how it impacted race in America. And it, the conversation in my presentation really started with that film, that that film is proof of the cultural impact that screenwriting and filmmaking and the arts can have on these conversations. So that's the first part to answer your question. Um, you know, the second part is I, I can't even properly articulate the impact she had on me. Um even though she was a hundred and lived a very long life. Oh my God, I'm getting emotional just talking about it. You're like Barbara Walters, Steve. But she was so smart and so talented and she never had the opportunities I did and I have. And so when I would hear her stories about, you know, what it was like, not just picking cotton, but chopping it, as my mother always reminds me, she said, no, picking was the easy part. It was the chopping it, Kelly. That was the really labor intensive hard part. Um, and that made my mother want to better herself so she didn't have to keep doing that um, into the next generation as well. Um, but but those lessons are the ones that stay with me when I have the privilege to sit and, and, and um, you know, partake in the opportunities I do today. I actually said to one of the stars of one of the shows I worked on um, in terms of its some racial stereotypes I was concerned about, and I said, when I sit in these rooms and on these sets, I'm there for every woman who never got there. I'm there for women like my grandmother. And that is how I feel about what we do. So I consider what we do as screenwriters to be important. And you're on strike. Yes, which is why I have time to talk to you. Right. <laughs> and for somebody who is watching this, 
and looks at it and thinks about Hollywood and they think about the star. So they're thinking about Jennifer Aniston, right? They're thinking about Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Morgan Freeman, Denzel, and Taylor Sheridan, right? He's a he's a writer. Everyone is on strike. Who can you explain what it is like to work in this industry? The thing that having been around it on the periphery is that it is fundamentally sustained by the electricians, the union contractors, right? Like this is a this is a middle class, working class industry, including of a lot of the working actors, a lot of the working writers. And this strike really is raising an issue that every person who works is going to deal with, certainly almost every person who works in what you would call a white collar industry, right? Where intellectually they have been insulated from the ferocity of the winds of globalization. Um, White collar workers as a general proposition have not had to train their replacements. Um, but if you're a radiologist, you're an accountant, you're all manner of lawyers. And so for whatever reason, the, the first group into the line talking about this issue and its profound ramifications for how we live, how we work, and how we function as a society in the 21st century, it's the writers and it's the actors. Right. I think the easiest way perhaps to explain it to your viewers and listeners, Steve, would be to say that just as on every presidential campaign, there is a John McCain, there are a lot of people who make that machinery work. There are the people building the signs. There are the people holding the signs. There are the people writing the speeches. There are the people doing the phone banking. And a presidential campaign can't function without all of those people. And the difference between those people and a John McCain is if a John McCain loses the campaign, he'll actually be fine. But there are certain people who, after the campaign is over, may not know how they're going to pay their rent. And the same goes for Amazon workers. There's a Jeff Bezos, and then there are the people delivering the packages. And I think what a lot of people did not realize until now is Hollywood functions very much the same way. There are Tom Cruise's, there are Denzel Washington's, there are Morgan Freeman's, and then there are the rest of us. And so while we may not be struggling as much as the actual Amazon delivery person, it's not always that far off. And I actually think, Steve, that strangely enough, one of the people who best articulated the precariousness of the positions of those of us who I think a lot of other people from places like my home state probably thought, I work as a cashier. I don't want to hear these annoying writers griping about their fancy gilded cages and their six-figure lives. Well, the person who actually, I think, explained how precarious our positions actually are better than anyone was whichever producer leaked to deadline that they were waiting until October for us to become homeless for them to come back to the table. 
they basically let out the dirty little secret that I think a lot of Americans who don't live in New York and LA never realized, which is most writers and most actors are only about two to three months away from being homeless. And finally, someone who pays us had the temerity and the audacity to actually tell that to the press. That's the truth. Um, so that's why we're on strike is that things have been getting increasingly worse in this industry. And I'm happy to explain some of the ways why, but I don't want to get ahead of wherever this conversation is going. The question, right, that I was going to ask and talking about the cashier and not to not to go down a, a rabbit hole, but was at a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And um, you go there and was with a bunch of my fellow Gen Xers and we're online, right, to get a beer and something to eat. And there's no people, right? You are ordering from a machine, which gives you a number and the number rolls out. And this is not, right, at age 52, I can learn to do it this way, right? But this is a new experience, right? About how you go and get a beer at a concert and what they have removed from the process, and by they, I mean management, are as many people from the equation as possible. So if, in fact, you are a cashier, um, you're living on borrowed time at the edge of the age of of the intelligent machine. And like a lot of professions, and it seems to me the writers and the actors are both taking an extremely important stand on a fundamental proposition about the dignity and importance of work to the happiness yes. of, a, of, a, of a life. You know, is it to be that there will be an incredibly small class of people that are richer than any human beings have ever been in the history of human civilization and everyone else is essentially pauperized into a vassal state who serves them across whatever industry of service, whether it's writing their entertainment or delivering via a truck their their pleasures. I unfortunately think the short answer is yes. I think that the people who are in charge across a lot of these industries have no problem with the future you just described, Steve. The reason we're on strike is because we do have a problem with that. Um, you know, I, I find it again, I'm I'm grateful to whichever exec made it very clear that he expects a lot of us to start struggling to pay our rents and our mortgages in less than three months of a strike. He's absolutely right, because I'm, you know, I'm someone who is already looking ahead to what I'm going to do financially uh, just a couple of months from now. I have plenty of friends in the same position. And again, coming from, I just want to give some context here, coming from the background I come from, you know, as someone who could not have attended college without financial aid and, you know, who grew up in a family who had really, you know, struggled just to get where they were. And my parents were the first in their family to go to college. So for me, the idea of ever earning six figures sounded like, you know, you're rich, right? That was kind of the the idea when I was growing up that who, who earned six figures, you know, people... I went to school with their dads were managers of grocery stores and construction workers who are in six figures. And then you, you, and then I worked as a journalist and we all know that doesn't pay well, particularly well either. So Hollywood really was the the land of dreams. And then you get there 
And, you know, as I think some of people have been reading in the articles, our increases in pay have not kept up with inflation, which is what up 9%. Our increases in pay were like 1.5% um, over a couple of years. You make low six figures. And then we happen to live in states that define themselves as progressive, which means they progressively have very high tax rates. So let's say you earn $120,000, which is more money than my mother they're ever earned, right? So for me, that sounds like a, that might as well have been a million dollars. And then you have city taxes, state taxes, federal taxes, managers, lawyers, agents. Imagine playing for a sports team where you're only paid per game and you're told by your coach that even if they don't want to bring you back, you can't even take meetings with people at other teams about what you're going to do next year. That That's what it's like being in our business, Steve is it's like scrambling from year to year, hoping hoping that you can just break even a lot of times. And 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 you're lucky if you get to put something away. That That's what the business has become like increasingly. The last thing I want to mention, because I think it's important, and it's one of the things that's not being talked about publicly, because it's a bit like what talking about Harvey Weinstein was 10 years ago, is a lot of the studios and the, the production companies already engage in behavior that I think could be considered abusive, but that very few people speak about publicly. And I'm going to speak about it right now. So I'll give you an example. I can't say what the show was. I can't say who the entity was producing it, but I will talk in broad terms so my lawyer won't have a heart attack. I worked on a project where we had a contract that was guaranteed for a certain amount of time, certain amount of money. I actually relocated for the project. Something happens. And then the studio decides they don't want to pay out what they owe the writers. And they tell our, our lawyers, each of our individual lawyers, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll be nice and we're willing to pay 15% of what you all think we owe you. Now, we had a contract, Steve. So follow up, our lawyers follow up. And this is what they were informed. We know what the contract says. We know you interpret it that way. But our position is, we don't. And they're welcome to arbitrate. They're welcome to sue. But, you know, it's tough to have a, a cordial relationship for future opportunities with people who have arbitrated or sued. I called two of my mentors in the business who'd been in the business over 20 years and walked them through what was happening and said, what do you do? Each of them said, oh, this has happened to me a couple times. So this is so does that not sound like shades of Harvey Weinstein? It's you'll never work in this town again. So people roll over. So this is what it's like in the business with the, where I think other people think that we're just all, you know, eating gold lollipops and, you know, have people carrying us around and fanning us, you know, and living this gilded life. The Taylor Sheridan's, the Shonda Rhimes, God bless them. But that is not what the life is for most writers. So, so you've described a couple of things and I, and I want to balance kind of two conversations, just observationally. One, is about the economic conditions, I think, that shape politics in the country. And and they are at a top level, right? You have 40% of the country doesn't have $400 cash available for an emergency. And no doubt, some of those people are making six figures a year. That's right. And so if you live in a state like California, that's a high real estate, high tax state, um, if you have kids in private school, 
you have a child that has any type of special needs added on, you have a parent uh, whose health you're involved in or any family member that you're financially supportive of, you are squeezed to death and have an inability really economically to climb the ladder and get ahead, particularly when you when you look at real estate prices in the in the Los Angeles area. So so all and, of and the- just to interject because that's important, Steve. I want that's important for your listeners to hear because a lot of times I see move. New York's California is expensive. Move. I'm sick of hearing people complain. Move. If this is where your career is, where are you moving to? So sorry, right. I just wanted to say that. So, and then the other issue is is the executive compensation right within the within the studios and how the studios have spent money on their businesses so for example right if the ceo of netflix makes 50 million dollars a year and in his infinite wisdom it was his decision to sign a 100 million dollar contract for whatever with Harry and Meghan because of why ever. And then he's pleading poverty, right? Or you look at the $200 million salary from one studio executive, the $50 million from another. And and the thing that I always think about in this is, is I remember uh, the hotel I would stay at in New York all the time during my years of consulting and business. I would go down for breakfast every morning and I'd have the same thing. I, I would have I'd have scrambled eggs, hash browns, orange juice, coffee, ice water. I get the bill, hundred twelve dollars. That was the that was the bill for the for the meal, and and I would get that bill. Someone's paying it, the business, right? Whatever whatever client would would sign it without a thought. Tip, you know, tip the twenty five thirty percent. But but what I would think about is why one hundred and twelve. Obviously, if I would pay $112, right, for the for the three scrambled eggs and the hash browns, I'd pay $135, right? And so where does the compensation come from, right? If you're the studio exec making $50 million a year running a public company, and by the way, this didn't exist when we were kids. If you made That's that right. much money, right? That's right. If you make baseball players, football players didn't make that type of money, nobody made, you know who made that? You know, People like Ted Turner were billionaires, right? You had to do something extraordinary, right? But if you were the public company CEO, right, you made a lot of money comparatively, but but you weren't living like a like a Middle Eastern crown prince. (laughs) So you hit the nail on the head because so I'll give you a perfect example of that. Ryan Murphy was paid. $300 $300 million by Netflix. That's the guy who did Glee. Glee was a successful show. It was not the most successful show in history. None of his shows have been the most successful shows in history. Netflix paid him $300 million. Guess who just announced, guess who it just came out that he's about to sign with now? Disney. So explain to me how both of them are having money problems, Steve. But they can afford, I'm assuming he's not going to Disney for significantly less than what Netflix just paid him or he would stay there. So we have Bob Iger, we have the guys at Netflix saying, pleading poverty to those of us that they say they can't afford to pay $200,000 a year to, but yet they have the 
300 million, the 200 million. Patrice Coolers from Black Lives Matter had a multi-million dollar deal, overall holding deal. Did it produce any content? Was she a, an established Black writer? No, but that was someone throwing money, right, at a problem to look like they were doing the right thing by progressives instead of actually doing something that would be perceived as legitimately progressive, which is paying people a fair wage who actually have the experience to do the job. So this is where we're at. And, you know, one of my friends is a producer. She put it beautifully. She said, look, listening to them cry poverty after they've literally thrown over $100 million at at least 20 people across the industry, and then turning around saying, we don't have the money to pay the rest of you. It's the equivalent of a little kid going to their parents who just said, you only get your allowance on Saturdays. And Wednesday they show up and they say, well, mommy, daddy, I'm out of money. And then they say, but you only get your allowance on Saturday. But I bought one big toy. I want to go buy other toys now. That's not the fault of the other toys at the store that you want, that you spent your allowance on one big shiny toy that either broke down or you don't actually enjoy playing with that much. And that's what they're asking us to do, Steve. And it's not only is I, I think it's morally wrong and unconscionable and un-American, but also we can't afford it. Like I legitimately can't afford to work for peanuts because you wanted to pay one person $200 million. It's just, it's insane. It's, it's insane. I will lastly say this though, to your fundamental point, um, you know, at least Taylor Sheridan and Shonda Rhimes and, and Ryan Murphy are actual writers. The idea that as one of my closest friends who worked on wall street for a long time said is he said, Kelly, let me get this straight. You have a bunch of guys who can't write, can't direct, can't act, can't turn on a camera, can't sing, can't dance, earning millions and millions of dollars to tell those of you who can actually do it what to do. <laughs> he said, he said, how does that, how does that make sense? He said, it doesn't sound right to me. It sounds right to you, Kelly. And I thought, wait a minute, he's on to something. And here we are a few months later at a strike. When you think about this strike, we were talking about your grandmother earlier in the world that she was born into. Mm-hmm. All with an with an overwhelming likelihood, if you were a black American in the 1920s, in the 1930s, and you identified with a political party, that political party was the Republican Party. It was right. the party of, of, of Abraham Lincoln. And that held until 1964. And in 1964, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act is passed, and the parties undergo really a geographic switcheroo on a 50-year basis where the Republican Party becomes the party, the custodian of the lost myth uh, of the lost cause, the myth of the lost cause um, becomes the home of the neo-Confederacy ideology um, of the revanchist uh, anti-civil rights momentum on the, on the backlash. And the, and the point on this is these, these political coalitions are fungible. They move there has always been a know-nothing element, a nativist element in American life. Slavery was not a disputed moral issue at the time of the revolution. You had people 
uh, mostly from the North, who looked at their slaveholding fellow founding fathers with moral repugnance, uh, were appalled by it. But it was expedient in the in the moment in time. So we go forward with the shifting political coalitions. The issues largely stay the same. We grow up in an era where, as a general proposition, the Democratic Party is the party of labor. Uh, the Democratic Party is the party of the working person. And what we've seen over recent years, really at a cultural level, and you can see it manifested in something like the Bud Light fiasco, um, where, where red America, working class America, is deeply alienated from Democrats culturally, but also economically. And the point of your column is to look at politics, to look at these labels, to look at these structures where this is all projected into politics by the national media that looks at this very black and white, very linear, right, on a scale, left to right. And that's really not how it functions because at the core, right, like in all fights, there's a choice. Right. And it's like mommy and daddy are fighting. Right. Or right. There's a divorce and everyone has to pick what side they're going with. Right. In the friend group. And the fight is between Wall Street. And your partners, because at the end of the day, Bob Iger, Sarandos, nobody can make anything without the actors, without the writers, without the directors, without the electricians who bring all of this to life for the consumer. And yet, they would rather starve their partners than alienate Wall Street. What does that say to you? It says that, as I said in the column, they're not nearly as progressive as they pretend to be. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's the, you know, and... uh you know, what's that saying about Hollywood, that Hollywood did, doesn't care about black or white, it just cares about green. And I think that that's the reality of what we're seeing. I mean, it was interesting when you were talking, Steve, and I, I actually was like, oh, I just want to sit back and listen to the show instead of participating in the show, because you were on a roll. Um, I think, though, you know, because a couple of the things that you nailed so perfectly is it wasn't just about Democrats allegedly being the party of labor, but allegedly being the party of civil rights. And you know, we started this conversation with me, you asking where my defiance comes from and how I was, you know, very clear about the fact that as much as I spent so much of my youth wanting to run away from Texas, I'm so glad that's where I was born and bred um, because I think there is a, a, a real sense of kind of uh, challenging the status quo and the boxes that people try to put you in. I mean, for instance, I, I've long said that I thought I grew up a Democrat in Tom DeLay's district in Texas until I moved to the East Village of New York and found out that there they felt I was basically a Republican, you know, because they were like, what are you talking about? Charter schools? That's uh, that's blasphemous, you know? Um, so I think that we're here, right? Where both parties have some work to do, a lot of work to do, um, because I've always been very clear that I would love to live for the day where a voter like me is considered the soccer mom vote of the year. You know, we're swing voters. Um, 
And I think that what Tim Scott represents, and particularly his willingness to really challenge DeSantis on what's happening with the Florida curriculum in terms of Black history, speaks to the fact that, you know, there's opportunities in that party. Um, And, you know, I I think that this situation with the strike, uh, Steve, really speaks to Democrats either putting up or shutting up in terms of where their values are. Because the irony is here you have this party that's been so chastised as being the party of Hollywood elites, and that's where they are. And it's like, well, it turns out they actually are the party of the Hollywood elites. I just think a lot of us didn't realize how elite the party was, that it really was only the elites who run the studios and networks, (laughs) not just the people that the Obamas attend parties with, right, who are Hollywood celebrities, that the people that it seems to me that Democratic power brokers are so far not willing to call to the carpet are the people who sign the checks for them as donors, as people who produce their projects. There's not a single major studio head that Kamala Harris doesn't know, Steve, because that's how she built her political career. It started as California AG. There's not a single person in charge she can't pick up the phone and talk to. Um, But my read of it is, you know, as one of my friends who read my column and called and asked, they said, you're so right. Where are the Democrats? Why, you know, what, why aren't they saying anything? I said, because I don't think they figured out how to chastise Bob Iger in the same phone call where they're going to ask him for a big check. They haven't figured out how to do it. They don't want to do it. Um, And if that's how they're going to treat the people in Hollywood who actually are more likely to donate to them, I understand why a voter in Michigan wouldn't trust them. I mean, who would? (laughs) Do you know what I mean, Steve? Who would trust them? So I am not particularly, I'm a fairly optimistic person. I'm not particularly hopeful for this election cycle because so far it seems like, you know, both parties aren't exactly bringing their A game to the table, at least not in terms of the average voter. Um, And that's a bummer, you know, as someone who cares about this country and very much cares about the process and cares about the fact that people who looked like me died to get the chance to vote. And this is the best our country can do. I mean, that's that's not a great statement on us right now. I want to come back to that in a second, but. I wanted to ask you about really the fight, right? The strike itself. So at the beginning of any fight, there's a lot of enthusiasm, right. a lot of bravado. Um, you know, if we were talking about guys, right? Like I'd be saying like the testosterone is flowing, right? But the energy is <laughs> coming, right? Everyone is out right. there six weeks later, Right. Two months later, three months later, different story. Right. This is hard every day to be on the picket lines, to hold up, to not give in. And there are only two ways. Right. To win a fight. You you either you either bring your opponent to submission or they bring you to exhaustion. So perfect historical analogies. Japan and Germany are what submission looks like. Exhaustion (laughs) is what the United States looks like after Vietnam, after Afghanistan, right? The cost of the fight is, is too much. And so when you talk about, we'll starve them out, we'll call it the Vicksburg strategy, right? They're going to, they're going to siege the WGA and the working actors until they break them financially. Right. You break morale and you break will. Now, what what 
what typically people don't understand psychologically, right, and this goes to the defiant streak, is that when you bombed cities, for example, in World War II, like London, instead of breaking morale, what it did is harden it. So what, what I wanted to ask you is, what is the morale right. on the picket line, you know, in the fight? It's it's clear to me, I think, as a as a as an observer of it, right? It's not ending any anytime soon. Um, it's going to the long haul. It may be the case that UPS and the Teamsters are are still on strike. And, and my personal view is is that the American labor movement is going to be fundamentally rehabilitated through this strike because these issues around artificial intelligence. Are, are profound issues. But what is the morale like? On I the, agree. So on it's so interesting line. you said that. So the, the first part of your description, I would say, is, was accurate. It was what was starting to happen, where I think, you know, the first couple of weeks, it was like fun. I mean, I hate to, to I, I know that right, sounds funny, but it was running into people you haven't seen in a long time on the picket line and lots of hugs and lots of like, and by the way, I don't know a single person in, in Hollywood, Steve, who hasn't been demeaned in some horrific way. It's just, it is so entrenched and ingrained in the culture and in the business that I think it there it, it really, it's a, it wasn't just about us being um, taken advantage of financially, but every single one of us has a story. I mean, in my case, I remember being on a conference call with my lawyer and someone who was trying to cheat us in a deal that they signed. And the person said to my lawyer with me on the call, what Kelly Goff has to understand is in this town, she's a nobody. Here's exact words where she's a nobody in this town. And I know what you're both saying, and I still don't want to do it. And that's how people speak to you. And this is, it doesn't matter how long you've been working, how many awards you've won. So that is the mindset. So that's to say that the strike is about more than that in the same way that Me Too was about more than her. Harvey Weinstein. It's it's women saying, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's what's happening on the, the picket lines. But you know, you're right. After a few weeks, a lot of that like hey, kind of turned into, hey, you know, we're back here again, picketing, until the gift that keeps on giving, that awful article where they said we can't wait for them to become homeless because then they'll come crawling back to the table. Oh my God. The way people return to that picket line in force. And to say, you know, words I can't say on your podcast, but <laughs> like that, to say that we're really going to stick it to the man who says that they want to see children homeless. It reinvigorated us. And then having the actors join us on the picket line too, where, you know, it, it's, it's pushing people to a breaking point until they say the status quo will not hold. And I think what they weren't ready for, Steve, is, you know, when you were talking about exhaustion. I think they didn't realize how many of us were exhausted already. You know, how many of us had, had been demeaned so much by so many people in so many ways in this business that staying on a picket line and having someone not return your calls, that's the easy part. What some of us have been put through by studios and networks and powerful people, that's the harder part. Um, so I think they underestimated the will there. And one thing I know for certain is they are going to run out of content. I'm already starting to hear from the the concerns, right? That they're worried they're going to not get some of these viewers back, particularly to late night shows. Those viewers have already started finding other ways to fill their time. Um, Barbenheimer, that phenomenon proved that people want 
um, good old school content that they can watch on a movie screen. So they're going to have to come up back to us at some point. Now, the reality, despite the rosy picture I kind of painted, is not everyone's going to still be in the business by the time they come back to us. And that's unfortunate. But I do believe that at the end of the day, we, as in the creatives, will prevail because as I like to say, Steve, everyone compares Hollywood to high school. You know, you got the jocks, you got the prom queens, you got the nerds, the writers are the nerds. Um, I compare it more to a car dealership where you can't have more car salesmen on the floor than you have cars. And you certainly can't have the people selling the cars earning significantly more than it costs to build the Ferrari. And you certainly can't have them coming in on a helicopter every day, not even knowing how a car works and trying to sell a car. In Hollywood, the writers and the actors, we're the cars. So we're the ones who are actually necessary for the industry to run. It's the other guys who's just forgotten that. And the strike is reminding them of that. Is there a recognition amongst the writers and actors that you're on the backside of a golden age of television and creation and streaming where an extraordinary volume of what I think will be regarded as masterpieces of of the genre, right, of film um, that were rendered for the small screen, that this era just economically is coming to an end because it's not sustainable. Is there a broad recognition of that? Or do people on the picket line believe that things will kind of stay the same post-strike as the industry rolls forward and goes on? It can't stay the same. It can't stay the same. I think the, the, I think there's a, a clear understanding that the industry as is is not working. I think the issue for debate is the analogy I just used. I think that the execs will tell you that there are too many cars, right? And not enough of them. That That's, they're going to be their percep- perception of Wall Street, that, that the person who used to be at AT&T and who got into TV and film in the same way that billionaires buy sports teams they know nothing about, that they're not the problem right? The players that they need to trade are always the problem. It's never them who's the problem once they fulfill their childhood dream of buying a sports team. It's the same mentality. I would actually say though, Steve, if I'm being candid, that the question that we're probably not all in agreement on, even on a picket line, and I have friends who might view this differently, but I'm just going to say from my perspective, I think the real question mark is when the golden age was. Some of the people who've mentored me in the business would say the golden age was Hill Street Blues, The Cosby Show, St. Elsewhere, where you had fabulous TV, but it was still a small enough business where you didn't have a lot of suits. We're picking, so we're talking, those shows are 1980s, 84, 85, 80, like late 80s, right? And a lot of the shows that are still considered the gold standard, right? Where you had Golden Girls, you had... All of these shows that were critically acclaimed, Cagney and Lacey, they won awards. They they could do storylines on things like abortion and people's heads didn't explode. And it was television that was about something meaningful and special, but still entertaining, not polarizing. 
And there wasn't a lot of it. You'd have 22 episodes, 26 episodes on networks, and your audience wasn't divided between 400 different streamers and 400 different cable channels. Um, so and there was a recognition that that's never coming back, right? Right, exactly. So, so exactly. So I think that's what I mean by splitting the difference because to kids younger than me, they would probably agree with you that the streaming era has been the golden age, but I'm not sure. Right. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe there needs to be a little bit of a reset in some capacity. Um, and I'm not sure what that looks like because I don't think I'm smart enough to to formulate that as a, as a business standpoint. But I would say that the version now where you have hundreds of pieces of content, some that are barely being sustained budget wise and others where one person's been given three hundred million dollars and the execs given 50, that model ain't sustainable. I was in a town in uh, Vietnam in March, Hoi An, Vietnam, and it's a 15th century Dutch trading port uh, on the Perfume River, a lot of bars, a lot of nightlife, and come up on this bar, international crowd, watching a soccer game, and you know, two Vietnamese women in their early 20s, and they're singing four non-blondes, Right. Um, you know, and ah. you think about, you know, <laughs> U.S., British, Western music, but, you know, one of the things that makes America a powerful country is America's culture, which is a wellspring of American freedom. Um, it's admired all over the world, right? And so our creators, our artists, our singers, our writers, our directors, put America's face forward in a much better way, for example, than do America's politicians as just a, as just a general pro as just a general proposition when, when looking at this, when, when you think about the, the, the issues in this strike, which are really the studio wall street wanting to live in a world of the quarterly return where mm -hmm. 90 days is as far as the horizon will ever see. And they want to take what's really at its core, something that's connected to every person in the country at some level as a, as a consumer and turn it into a widget business. And, and to right. turn the writers and the actors and the artists into their version of a fast food worker who can be exploited to the maximum advantage. And, you know, I think, for example, the Starbucks strike is a great harbinger of this, right? And the proposition was, you're a Starbucks fast food worker and the CEO calls you his partner, though you never get to ride on the private plane. Right. Um, right. Or to right. Or to enjoy in any in any of those perks. But you're the partner. You're making, you know, 15 bucks an hour, 13 dollars an hour, where wherever it may be. And you're a cog, dispensable, replaceable by a machine. And so the dignity of the society. Right. Whether it's the writers here and the UPS drivers here and the Starbucks people here, everybody, including teachers and accountants and radiologists is increasingly in the same boat as you can cut cost, 
with intelligent machines to increase the return of profit to pay a CEO more by meeting a metric set by Wall Street that has no regard whatsoever for any human capital. And that's not yeah. capitalism. Yeah. Well, so first of all, you know, if we were in church, you would have gotten an amen and a well. Well, as uh, in the Southern churches, I'm sure you visited a few on campus. I have. So, so what I would say is, yes, and the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. I believe that weirdly, one of the things that could help lead to a conclusion of this strike is the Barbenheimer phenomenon. I finally saw Barbie with a screenwriter friend yesterday. And the fact that those are two films, films that never could have been made by chat GP or AI, have become the phenomenon that they did, have become bigger phenomenons than some of the superhero films than the Mission Impossible film. It speaks to the fact that we're not as replaceable as widgets as the executives thought we were. I think that is actually the story why that those films are getting so much coverage. Barbie's about to break a billion dollars worldwide. Greta Gerwig, who I'm a huge fan of, is really, for all intents and purposes, she's like an old school screenwriter. And I mean that in the best sense of the term, you know, an Oscar nominated traditionalist film uh, uh, screenwriter and now the most successful female film director in history. So that doesn't get made by machines. And the success of those two films sends the message that we're not as replaceable as the execs thought we were. Have you seen Oppenheimer? Not yet. Next. I couldn't do all five hours. It is a, it is a deep movie. Pretty, pretty amazing stuff. I have one other question that I wanted, that I wanted to ask you today. Like when I, when I read about you, I was totally fascinated by is, is the Blackberry. Are you, oh. are you, how long did you go on the BlackBerry? You're not still using a BlackBerry. They, it's still on. It has no it's still on. Can it receive? Does it, does it function? No. no, no, but I have so many contacts in it and so many notes to myself in it. I was one of the last holdouts, even when it was announced in the New York times that they had shut down the service. I received condolence notes from people all over the world who know me. And mine still functioned for a couple months. And and Steve, to tell you what a holdout I was, it I the way I found out it was no longer working because they finally just gave up on trying to contact me because I could I wouldn't respond. <laughs> is that they just shut it off? And I found out from friends who started emailing and saying, "I've been leaving, texting you. Where are you?" That was how I found out that, that was, they shut it off about it. And that was oh. it. One I of the last BlackBerry holdouts. Um, <laughs> every day. <laughs> I, um, again, I think that the, the column that you wrote so perfectly encapsulates politics and its realities and the choices. And in fact, that it's not two teams, it's two powerful institutions that exist for the purposes of political power that have to make accommodations and choices within their coalitions 
that tell us a lot over time about who those parties are and what they stand for and what they believe. I thought it was a really sophisticated piece and something that everybody should read and we'll put it up because this moment of politics is right at the edge of a of a massive disruption because the country and it comes back to this position of defiance the country is saying to its political parties and its political leaders we do not want the round peg you are delivering to us we want a square one and the powers that be are in essence saying you're getting a round one you're getting the Biden-Trump rematch and the country doesn't want it. Right. And, and what really unites people in this country, the national character, is defiance. And so any time you try to impose top-down, particularly from a top-down politics perspective, what's going to be, the country typically has a bad reaction to it. So it's going to be a very volatile, very uncertain, really crazy, and I think unpredictable year where a lot of things are going to happen that are different than than the experts are telling us. And I think one of the things that's happening right now that is of huge importance to the type of American economy we're going to have, how people are going to live, how they're going to work, how they're going to get paid is this writer's strike that you're on. It's important. I know it's tough and good luck out there. And, you know, just know that I think there's millions of people out there across the country that that are that are very much going to be affected by this. So hang tough in the days in the days ahead. It's going to go on for a long while. Good to be with you. Thank you.